Welcome, ankle biters. You stumbled on the far, far's far-fetched fables, the home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the youngins here, but you grown-ups can have a listen too. If you have a mind to, tap on the subscribe button, whatever that is, or like us on the Facebook. In the meantime, turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode... Chapter 4. Paul Bunyan's Return. So here Paul came, once more nearing the town where he had been born. A giant figure of a fellow now, he pushed his way through the thick timber, bending aside the trees in his road as if they were stalks of grass. Following closely at his heels was Babe, with Mrs. Paul perched on his back, and Jim, the pet crow, comfortably riding on his left horn. They finally came out of the woods into a clearing, and there Paul decided to camp. It so happened that a hunter stepped into the opposite side of the clearing just about the time that Paul and his companions appeared from among the trees. Unnoticed by the newcomers, he stood for a moment, gazing spellbound at what he saw. Then with all the haste he could muster, he sneaked back along the path he had come and ran with all speed towards town. Breathlessly, he burst upon the crowd of loafers before old Deacon White's store and told what he had seen. I tell you, I saw it myself, he shouted angrily as his listeners laughed in disbelief. There he was, a great tall man that would make ten on any of you, yes, more than ten. Brushed the trees out of his way like grass, he did. And he had an ox with him that's as big as forty oxen around these parts. A blue ox at that, blue as indigo. And if you don't believe me, you can go back and look for yourselves. Which was defiance, he stared around at his listeners in a high and mighty manner, proud of being the center of interest. Deacon White, a very old man who was certainly the richest and shrewdest person in all the country around, had listened with interest to the hunter's story. Hmm, well, he offered. Maybe it's Paul Bunyan come home again. I don't calculate it could be anyone else. And furthermore, he went on, glancing with contempt at the men before him, if that's who it is, maybe I can get him to log off that district of mine back in the hills where none of you timid woodmen will touch. With a snort of derision, he turned his back on them and gave orders for his chore boy to saddle his horse at once. As soon as he was mounted, he lost no time in galloping toward the clearing where the stranger was reported to be. Hello there, piped the deacon, who was finally in sight of the camp. Be you Paul Bunyan? That's my name, Paul answered, bending low over the old man so that he could hear him better. He was much pleased that someone remembered him after all the years he had been away. I thought so explained the other. I'm Deacon White. Lived in these parts a long time, I have. Knew your pappy and mammy, and knew you when you were a baby. <laughs> and the old man's white whiskers shook as he chuckled over certain memories. 
You raised quite a ruckus around here then. Don't reckon I'll ever forget all the excitement you stirred up. And the old man chuckled again. Paul's gratification was beginning to turn to embarrassment when his visitor finally made his errand known. You showed so much promise as a youngster, said the deacon, that now I've come to offer you a good job of hard work that no one else is man enough to tackle. Bully for you, responded Paul heartedly. That's just what I'm looking for. What is it? Prospects of a difficult task interested him at once. For along with the great strength that nature had given him, he had developed a passion for using that strength in the hardest kind of labor. It seemed a privilege for him to be able to do the grand and thrilling works of the woods. In fact, during his years as a lumberman, whenever he found his men soldiering or loafing on the job, as sometimes happened once or twice in a season when cabin fever infected them, he would send them all back to camp to think over their shame and joyfully do all the tasks by himself. If it has to do with the woods, if it's worthwhile, I'm your man, he promised. It's all of that, the old man promised him. Back in the mountains, I have several thousand sections of fine timber that has never been touched by an axe. I need these logs for my mills, but I can't get any of these half-portion lumbermen around here to log off the tracks for me. It's said that there are a lot of agro-pelters and gumbaroos there, and maybe other critters as well. And they have scared everyone else out, so they were afraid to go into those woods. I don't calculate they could run you out, though, could they? And he peered up at the giant from before him with such an amusing, quizzical look that Paul burst into a roar of laughter so loud that the old deacon was thrown from his horse and the people back in town thought it was thundering. Now, gumbaroos and agro pelters were, in the early days, a very real danger to woodsmen, and any tract of timberland that sheltered them was rightly shunned by all ordinary persons. Most people today have never heard of them, having forgotten that long years ago, before most of the forests were cut down, there were a lot of queer animals living in the wild places where men seldom ventured. Most of these animals are now extinct because lumbermen have destroyed their hiding places. But in the early days, they were found there, and some of them were very dangerous to man. There were ring-tailed Bavalorus and the Wind-Tosser, for instance, and the Agropelter and the Gumbaroo, the Snowlagoster and a lot of others. At one time or another, as history shows, Paul Bunyan met up with quite a few of them during his logging operations. The Agropelter was a very strange animal, and greatly feared because he had a special hatred for all mankind. No woodsman was ever anxious to run across him. He was very strong, with a slender, wiry body, a villainous, ape-like face, and long, thin arms like muscular whiplashes, so powerful that they could break off dead branches and hurl them with the force of a cannonball. He liked to tuck himself away in the hollow of a dead and rotted tree and there lie in wait for his enemy, man, to come by. When a luckless human being happened to pass beneath his den, 
The aggro pelter would seize a large club, which he kept handy for the purpose, and with his whip-like arms would hurl it with such unerring aim that very seldom did he fail to crack the skull of the unlucky intruder. The animal fed only upon hoot-owls and woodpeckers, and the toughness of his diet, together with its scarcity, is thought to have been the cause of his continuous rage. The gumbaroo was another fearsome creature that infested various stretches of woodland. He was almost round in shape and was the largest animal in the woods. He was safe from all enemies because of his skin, which was like leather, and so thick nothing could pierce it. He could eat a horse at one meal, and has been known to destroy a whole herd of moose without the least injury from the terrible horns of the fierce bulls. In fact, no creature was ever able to find a vulnerable spot in the animal's anatomy, for whatever struck the beast bounced off again with the same force. Even when a rifle was fired at him, so tough was his hide and so elastic his body that the bullet was sure to bounce back at exactly the same speed and strike the hunter squarely between the eyes. He was always hungry, always ready to eat anything that looked like food, and was especially fond of human beings. There was one thing, however, which the Gumbaroo greatly feared, and which he had no protection against, and that was fire. He was of a very inflammable nature, burning like celluloid if fire ever touched him, and finally blowing up with the tremendous force of giant powder. Woodsmen claim that occasionally the creatures could be heard exploding with loud reports when they happened to get caught in forest fires, and it is thought that the increasing prevalence of such fires has had much to do with their scarcity in recent years. So fearful of fire were they that just the smell of smoke would drive them far away, and it was through knowledge of this weakness that Paul and his men eventually cleared the deacon's woods of these fierce creatures. So it was not very strange that the deacon could not find anyone willing to log off the timberlands where agro-pelters and gumbaroos were lying in wait. Paul Bunyan, however, was quite different from other men, and he just laughed at the danger. I'm your man, deacon, he promised, and they at once began discussing terms. When they had come to an agreement, Paul said, you drop the papers, deacon, and arrange for the necessary supplies of grub and tools and other things. I'll strike out for the woods at once, pick a location for my camp, and start getting my crew together. It'll soon be late fall now, and I want to start cutting by the first time the snow comes. Are there any men in town I might have use for? The old man snorted in disgust. All pretty poor stuff, except for Swedish Ole, the blacksmith, he replied. He's the biggest man around here, though not so big as you. When he puts shoes on a horse, he takes the animal up on his lap like a baby. He's a mighty good blacksmith, all right, but I expect folks will be glad to get him out of town, as he's kind of clumsy, and they're all afraid of getting stepped on sometime. I'll need a smith. And he sounds like a good man, said Paul. You sign him up for me, and he can join me later. Meanwhile, I'll get busy as I have said, 
and we'll manage to see you again before long. And after making further arrangements for his wife to accompany the deacon back to town, where she was to remain while he was in the woods, Paul started away, followed by Babe, the great blue ox. He traveled many miles through the forest and over mountains and figured that he must be getting near the deacon's tract of woodland. Then all at once he began to hear sounds like long peals of nearby thunder. He looked at the sky and saw that the sun was setting perfectly clear, with not a cloud to be seen. So he knew there could be no storm coming up. As he went on, the sounds grew louder, and Paul became more puzzled than ever. Finally, he came out into a cleared space on the side of a mountain, where a forest fire had swept the slope clean of trees from top, bottom to top, and there he saw a very strange thing. Hearing the thundering noise again, he looked ahead and was surprised to see a great round stone, as big as a house, rolling down the mountainside toward the valley below. It came bounding along at great speed, gaining momentum with every turn, and as it rolled along it jarred the earth with tremendous sounds that he had been hearing. But strangest of all was the man who was running along beside it, holding something tightly against it as it turned over and over. Paul looked more closely and saw other stones rolling downhill in the same manner, and along with each one, keeping pace with it, was a tall, strongly built man with something in his hand. I wonder what queer new game they're playing, Paul said to himself, walking on to get a nearer view. Then it was that he began to understand what the men were doing. Each of them had an axe in his hand and was holding its edge to the stone as it turned over and over in headlong flight down the steep slope. The men were grinding their axes. Thus it was that Paul Bunyan caught first sight of the seven axemen, mighty men of the woods, whose heroic fame through the later years was almost as great as his own. They were with him through most of his lumbering operations, and for many years they continued to sharpen their axes in this way, starting a huge round stone rolling down a long, steep hill and running along beside it, holding the edge of an axe to it as it turned. Later, when they moved with Paul to the Dakotas, they found no hills steep or long enough to serve their purpose. And it was then that Paul invented the revolving grindstone, so common today to take the place of the rolling rocks. But that was a later development. The Seven Axemen. Noble figures they were, never equaled before or since, except by Paul Bunyan himself. They were cousins, it is said, and originally came from Canada. Each could cut down several square miles of timber in a day without exerting himself and then not be too tired afterwards to join in the pranks and horseplay of the camp. They were jolly fellows, and Paul got along with them first rate through many years. Observing that they had company, the axemen dropped their labors and came forward to greet the newcomer, all happy at having a visitor. They were congenial lads, with hearts as big as their two fists, and they welcomed Paul with great friendliness. They cast many admiring glances at his great size and at the hugeness of Babe, the blue ox, as one can well imagine, though they were almost as big as Paul themselves. 
with the greatest hospitality, they invited him to stay overnight with them. And so, just as the sun had set, they all presently came to the big log shanty where the seven axemen lived. After their tools had been put away, their visitor accompanied them to the little lake nearby where they proceeded to wash up before supper. And such a splashing did the lot of them make that they all splashed all the water out of the lake so that it was never of any use after that. Just then the supper horn blew and they tramped back into the shanty. There Paul met the little chore boy, a youngster who did the cooking, attended to the chores, and did all the light work that had to be done while the seven axemen attended to all the heavy labor. As the little chore boy weighed only 800 pounds, he had to put up with a great deal of jossing and teasing from the seven axemen because of his small size. They all sat down to supper, except the little chore boy, whose duty it was to wait on them, and who never sat down to table with full-grown men. Such a supper it was. The little chore boy was continually groaning under the weight of the food he carried to the table. The seven axemen were hearty eaters. A half of a full-grown hog was only a slice of bacon to them, and Paul's appetite was so much greater even than theirs that he immediately won the deep admiration of them all. Finally, the toothpicks were passed, and everybody sat back and began to fill his pipe. Paul had been wondering what the cord of firewood was on the table for, until he found out that the seven axemen used cordwood for toothpicks. When all had their pipes going, they moved away from the table to give the little chore boy a chance to clean up. Paul had never found anyone he liked so well as he did these seven axemen. He could see that they were all good lumbermen, too, well acquainted with the work of logging off timber and accustomed to doing everything in a big way. And so he started in telling them about the contract he had made with the deacon's tract. They were greatly interested, nor did they hesitate in giving him an answer when he offered them top places on his crew. They liked hard work. The harder the job, the better they liked it. And to work for such a mighty man as Paul Bunyan appealed to them very strongly. They accepted his offer then and there. Afterwards, everybody being greatly pleased over the new arrangements, they lounged before the fire and sang songs like Bung Your Eye and Shanty Boy until the people back along the coast, miles away, thought a storm was blowing up. Well, young'uns, that thar's the end of chapter four. But thar's a whole lot more a-coming your way in just a few days. So come on back and join us for more storytelling here at Farfar's Far-Fetched Fables. And remember, clean your room. Mm -hmm.